0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. I am your host, Cody McBroom, the CEO of Tailored Coaching Method, a world-renowned online coaching company. This podcast is built to help you create a life by design. That's what the Tailored Life is. It's choosing to blaze your own path, make your own decisions, and create a life you desire. So in this podcast, you're going to learn ways to optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your relationships, and optimize your business and career. This is the podcast for personal development junkies and people who can't stop growing because they strive for more. We are also going to bring on experts in every single field to teach you their own expertise. So you're not only learning from me four days a week, but I'm bringing other professionals in to teach you their principles too. So if you love personal development and you constantly want to strive for more in life, this is the podcast for you. Make sure you hit subscribe, send this to a friend that needs it, and keep listening to improve your life all around. And without any further ado, let's get into the Tailored Life podcast. Today is April's research review with our chief science officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts. We get into two very, very uh, applicable Topics of discussion from a coaching perspective and just an application perspective for anybody who likes to lift and likes to diet, likes to look lean, build muscle, so on and so forth. One of the topics we've actually already reviewed before, but after we came out with our research review on training to failure and its uh, benefit or detriment, uh, what it does for strength and hypertrophy, um, should you train to failure, so to speak. After we did that review and it published, they actually did a meta-analysis, which means that they went through. Uh, for those who don't know what a meta-analysis is, it means that they went through and they found all the good research studies that were done on training to failure, and they came to one overarching conclusion based on all the research. Instead of looking at one single research paper, right, doing one study on one group of people and determining what training to failure does or means or or if it has any value, instead of doing that, they looked at all the research study done by all the different researchers who have dug into the topic. So typically a meta-analysis is the cream of the crop. It doesn't mean that there's, they're always perfect or, or uh, you should take them as the gospel, but typically they do give us the best overarching education on a topic because, again, they, they look at the, the mass population of research on a, a given topic and dive into it. But um, during this podcast, we're going to dive into a meta-analysis on training to failure. I think you're going to get a lot out of that one. We split it into two parts, which is going to be training to failure for strength and performance and then training to failure for hypertrophy. And then we kind of discuss the differences between the two and when you should do it in an applicable stand, standpoint, right? So, during your, your program, during your weekly session, during your monthly, over the long term, when we go out of the length of the studies that we see that are typically eight weeks, 12 weeks at max, what happens at 12, 16, 20 weeks of training to failure consistently? Does it prove to get better results? Does it wear and tear on your joints and tendons and ligaments? We're going to discuss that and we're going to tell you how to train to failure and when you should actually train to failure. And then we dive into the most, research, uh, most recent research on diet breaks, the ice cap trial uh, written by uh, research by... Jackson Piaz from Australia, um, somebody who I'm actually uh, working with and Brandon is doing an analysis for on this uh, paper. And in my opinion, it's one of the most revolutionary diet break studies. I think it's the best one to date because it, it kind of, you know, after the Matador study came out, we thought we knew a ton about diet breaks. And prior to that, we thought we knew even more from a physiological or hormonal or metabolic perspective. Um, The Matador study kind of boosted those thoughts and then the ice cap trial kind of shut down some of those thoughts. So it's been kind of ping-ponging back and forth, but this ice cap trial really showed us a lot about what diet breaks really do and how they may help hunger cravings, muscular endurance, training, muscle maintenance but may not actually influence hormones or metabolic um, advantages uh, so much as psychological and training advantages and just adherence to the diet in general. So we're going to dive into the weeds on that one. We're going to explain what the, the study actually showed us and what is true for sure. We're going to speak on some hypothetical things that might apply into coaching that may not have been covered in the study because the study is always limited compared to application, right? Right. Research and application don't always link up perfectly eye to eye, but there is a lot of takeaways from it. Um, and then last but not least, we, we tell you exactly how to apply these diet breaks into your diet. Um, should it be weekly? Should it be bi-weekly? Should it be monthly? Should it be not at all? Should it be phased um, over the course of a year? We really go through all the different scenarios and both of our opinions from a researcher and a coach's perspective. So a lot of information. This one, you guys are going to get a ton. Um, before we get, jump in the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor of this specific episode and that, as always on Mondays, is going to be the Taylor Trainer, which is our training App. This app is less than $1 a day, and you can get completely tailored and periodized programs specific to your goals and your schedule. You control your calendar, and you are able to progress in the gym to reach your results and get a private community with me coaching along the way. Um, It is a revolutionary app. It's one of the coolest apps on the market when it comes to training. I'm so pumped about it. I can't speak highly enough of it. And the people inside are not only loving the access and the easeability of the app, but they're loving the results they're getting. So if you're somebody who trains hard, you're serious about getting results, and you want to see better results from the hard work you are putting in, it's time for a more intelligent, safer, and periodized program um, that is based on research and is based on science, and that is what I'm giving you with the Taylor Trainer. So you can click the link in the description of this podcast, or you can head over to taylortrainer.net, and you can check that out. So without any further ado, let's get into the research review for April with our chief science officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts. All right, so today we have two... Um, we've actually been doing really good. Well, you've been doing really good cause I don't choose these topics really. Um, I throw some ideas out there, but you, you take the role in this, um, picking good topics to, that are very applicable to people that we work with and people that, um, I talk to and that I answer questions with and, and things like that. Um, I, and it's funny cause I've been, I've been trying to, like kind of intrigue people to ask more questions with my newsletters, like, Hey, hit reply and tell me what you think about this or what you want to know about this. So I have some ideas for future ones, but we've been choosing really good topics that I think are really helpful. Um, and we've talked about this first one before being trained to failure. And it's always such a debated topic. And I have such mixed feelings on it because I think, I think research and application are two different. They're not two different things, but I think that people need to understand the research and then they need to see what people are actually doing in real life and then try to educate those people because some people, some people don't know what failure is and some people abuse failure training, you know, and I think there's, I think there's a balance to be had. So I like this topic. So the fact that we're bringing it back up, um, and it just happens to be that a a meta analysis came out right as we launched the last one that we did on this. So I think this is perfect timing to kind of revisit the topic and, get a little deeper but um, if you want to break down the study and and kind of explain what they did and then the findings and then we can kind of pick it apart that'd be great
1: yeah Um, so the the study is like you said it's a a systematic review and meta-analysis and to remind you know listeners that's basically where you set some inclusion and exclusion criteria and then you search the literature for all the studies that kind of fit your criteria Um, and so as you can imagine how you define your criteria Dictates what type of studies you're going to get. So, this study um, was looking at failure versus non-failure. So you had to have you know two groups, one of each, um, and they did it on young, healthy people. So there's there's no older adults, there's no you know premenopausal, or menopausal women or anything like that. Postmenopausal, um, there's no blood flow restriction. So there's none of the Failure versus non-failure on blood flow restriction, and it had to be the study had to be at least six weeks, and you know, that's kind of a, a given because most exercise science studies, especially in hypertrophy, are at least six weeks. Um, but it's good to throw it in there because you might get like a an acute study that's seven days, and then you have to put it in your meta-analysis, and you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so they did muscle strength and muscle hypertrophy were their two outcomes. The strength outcome. It's pretty simple um, and is seems to be very uh, much buttoned up in the terms that re meta analysis have currently found and support the idea that you do not need to train to failure to maximize strength. And from a practice standpoint, that's a lot of sets. And there's been a, in that analysis, they had about 15 studies. So a good solid number of studies.
0: Just geared towards strength. Just,
1: yeah, with a strength. Well, they at least had one strength outcome. So that could be one RM. That could be, um, and they're not all like perfect. So it could be max isometric strength, whereas like you push against a wall essentially and you're measuring your strength. That could be, they actually did a couple with like a five RM. And then there was one even with like a 10 RM, which is like not really strength, but um, they didn't, they couldn't exclude it because they didn't put like a rep max on it on the inclusion. Um, so that was included. Uh, most of those studies were two to three days per week of training, you know, six to 14
0: weeks. It's it's always good too to like, think about historically speaking what athletes do. Cause if you look at power lifters or strength athletes, weightlifters, anything like that, they rarely go 100% to failure unless they're on the competition floor, because that's the whole purpose. So if you see years and years and years of athletes periodizing their plans to always kind of stay in that like 75 to 95% at most range you know, and I guess even less for speed work, right? 60, 65% sometimes. So, um, just based on that, that would make sense. I think hypertrophy is where it gets a little more murky in, in the historical experience perspective, because there's, I mean, there's so many people that do so many different things. You can't even explain it.
1: Yeah. So, so strength, you know, pretty simple, no differences, which also means in this study, at least no detriment either. So, um, in the, the, back size favored non-failure for strength, um, but ultimately there wasn't a difference. So it, it depends on what angle you're coming from. So for the hypertrophy side, right, they only had seven studies, so half the studies, and they had lots of different measures of muscle hypertrophy. So they had DEXA, which, you know, is kind of lean mass um, and can be a little tricky because you have, like, organs and things that count, and uh, glycogen and things. And then they did, or they also included studies with ultrasound, which is better than DEXA, especially if you're like doing your biceps, you can ultrasound your biceps, get a good measure pretty easily. And then they did muscle fiber cross-sectional area, which is, you know, from biopsies. So a lot of different measures in there. And when they looked at the overall analysis, they found there was a slight advantage in um, training, actually, let me rephrase that. In the overall al- analysis, there was no benefit to training to failure um, or non failure. So it's kind of like it didn't matter. They all hypertrophied the, relatively the same amount. Um, now, when they broke out and looked at, okay, now we can, you know, it doesn't matter in the big picture, but what if we control for uh, trained versus untrained, right? Very common comment in Literature, it's like oh, it was on untrained people. It doesn't count. It's like, well, I mean, it's not as good as trained people, but it still counts. Um, it may just be more of a robust effect, right? Because when if you, in an untrained you, did the same protocol, the untrained you is going to you know grow way more. Yeah. Uh, so what they found when they did that analysis, and there was only like two studies in it, was that there was uh, an effect in favor of training to failure. Um, for trained people. So that says, well, okay, maybe if we're trained, we have to push a little harder and we need to out. Uh, then they looked at, let's see, they looked at a bunch of different variables. They looked at body region, uh, volume equated versus non-equated. They looked at uh, study design and it didn't really matter except for training status. Um, so... That's the big finding in this meta-analysis, uh, at
0: least. Is that, so So repeat that, if, if across the board, volume equated, not equated, all those different things, you're saying that beginners, people with less training age, are more favorable or less favorable?
1: So people who are trained, if they train to failure, it's better for hypertrophy, essentially.
0: Okay. So, so untrained, more...
1: it doesn't doesn't really matter, um, but trained, it does.
0: And that would make sense. Like you said, I mean, the newer you are, the more novel that stimulus is and the more likely you are to create adaptation. And even, I know like, I mean, I guess in a lab, they probably really do make sure you're failing. Like I was going to say, like in real life, beginners... I I thought I was pushing myself really hard and I probably wasn't at all. I don't think I had the neurological capability to do so. You know, I I wasn't there yet. I didn't even have the skill to perform a movement properly for that many reps, you know. So I think that um, that plays a role. But that makes a lot of sense, too, because I would think the more advanced you get, actually, there's, you know, I've always had kind of two thoughts on this. Like, one thought is the more advanced you get, the stronger you get, meaning the heavier the loads Long term, the harder that might actually be on your body and your joints and your nervous system, you know, and then the other side of me is like, you almost have to go to that limit because you got to squeeze out every last percent you can to make gains when you're making so few gains at such. I mean, you know this, like as a natural lifter, you, you train hard as hell for a year. If you gain a couple pounds of muscle, you're pretty stoked, (laughs) you know, and that's like, yeah, it's not that crazy. For sure.
1: And um, so in the, in the blog, I put a link to Schoenfeld was part of this meta-analysis. And he has his take on it. Um, And he brings up the point you literally just did. Like, as you reach your genetic ceiling, you need to train harder and you're going to see smaller amount of gains. Um, I had a discussion with one of my mentees, I think it was yesterday, the day before. And it was like, what we really need to do is someone needs to do an analysis where they just take all of the data on trained people and all the data on untrained people and just control for protocol. So it doesn't matter what you did and just see how much of a difference that is. Like, does a trained person gain 15% muscle hypertrophy in a, uh, sorry, untrained person? And then does a trained person gain like 3%? Because that's probably what you would find. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then add in that these studies are only six to eight, 12 weeks, and you have even smaller differences too. So to detect these differences in trained people, it's really hard, which is why you don't see a ton of research on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I would think, too, like, at least in my experience, um, one one program that comes to mind that, like, really had this effect on me negatively, um, I shouldn't even say program because it's not really a program. It's a periodization or progression style, but DUP, right? When for, DUP first came out, um, when I first read, Mike Zordos started talking about it this years ago. At that point, for most people who weren't literally like you, like doing research and understand how to dissect research on your level, DUP meant you bench squat deadlift three times a week. That's what it meant. <laughs> and you you have a, a power and speed day, you have a hypertrophy day, and you have strength day. Um, and for me, it was strength, power, hypertrophy, because hypertrophy made me the most sore due to the eccentrics and everything and the high volume. So I'd have a couple rest days before getting the strength day on Monday. Um... And my strength shot up. And I actually remember my lats specifically. My lats and quads grew a lot. Well, quad and hamstring, the whole diameter. Um, And the only thing I was adding in there on top of those three movements was either a chin-up or a T-bar row. And I would just throw that in at the end for some extra volume. So, which that probably explains like the lat growth. Um, But, you know, for like eight weeks, it was like I was just cruising, getting stronger, feeling good. And then I hit 12 weeks and like my back started hurting. My knees started hurting. And, uh, the, the percentage based periodization wasn't enough of a deload from, for my joints, right? Like I probably should have done it for like six to eight weeks, taken like a few weeks of just like bodybuilding and then come back to it. Um, but the reason I'm saying this is a good example of like, those are big compound lifts, but I was pushing near failure really damn close, sometimes failing, especially on the strength days um three days a week I was going really hard you know and after a while it wasn't my muscles that stopped growing it wasn't my um muscles that got sore or anything it was my joints and my tendons and ligaments basically that's it um looking back at it it's like the reason I'm saying that is because you know that was either 12 or 16 weeks I ran that when I started really feeling it so it's like one do these eight week studies are they going to show us some of those things I don't know also with, with training age, like that's one of my biggest considerations, you know? So for like right now, I never take those kind of movements to failure, but I take a lot of isolation work to failure and even some accessory, like a Bulgarian split squat, I'll take that to failure and barely get my last rep. If I get it and just drop the dumbbells. Cause it's like injury risk is so low. You know, I don't have a bar on my back. I'm not doing uh, a super heavy load. Um, I mean, eighties to a hundred pound dumbbells in your hands for Bulgarians is fucking hard. It's heavy, but it's not compressing your spine. You can just drop it, you know? So I think that all those things play a role. And you got to—you almost have to be like – what exercise did they use in the study? Because I was going to say you almost got to be really careful and, and creative with what you're taking to failure to get the most out of failure training.
1: Yeah, so that's, um, that's an excellent point. The two studies that they used or that they found for trained participants, one used velocity-based training – so um, it was. I think I'm pretty sure it was a bench squat dead type thing, like like you just described. But the so the failure group was doing a velocity loss of forty percent, and they would stop. So that's what they considered failure. And the non failure group, when their velocity loss hit twenty percent, that was the non failure cutoff. So that's not even like true failure. So you can see kind of with the inclusion, it's like ah does that study even really tell us that much? Um, And then the other one, it was like three sets of 10, which is much more comparable. Um, And it was three days a week. And I think it was your standard, what, bench press, leg press, seated rows, and squat machine, so squat. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like, you're right. These, taking a failure over a long period is going to suck. And even more so, like all of these studies in here are two to three days per week. If you're doing five days a week and you're going to failure every day, like it's a whole another beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably necessary sometimes, but not all the time.
0: I would also be curious, like looking at an. I mean, this would probably take some work, but looking through an, a meta-analysis like this, that looks at all these studies, separating what groups used predominantly machines and then predominantly barbells and free weights and then going which one like is there a trend it might be no difference it might just be neutral but was there a trend of seeing like non-failure groups or staying a little bit like like you know lower on the rir scale rpe scale um did that favor the barbell groups versus the, the machine groups because systemically they're a little bit less fatiguing um i'd also like to see a study that did this with because like you even see people that do promote failure training or going balls to the wall, and there's always caveats, right? So, like even you know John Meadows, like love John Meadows' work. He's a big proponent of intensity, going super hard. You look at the predominance of his program; he's not doing low rep, heavy barbell work. He might throw a barbell in there, but even some of the barbell work, it's a landmine Meadows row. You know, that's mm-hmm. not that's not the same as a bench press or or a back squat. Or we look at uh, I think his name's Jordan Peters or Peterson or some monster. He's just like this huge, (laughs) huge ball of muscle, but he goes like all the way to failure. He's like Dorian Yates style, but I've seen some of his train stuff and I might be incorrect saying that all of his trains like this, but I see him doing like hammer strength press and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's different. You know, chest flies, that's different. You know, you're using cables and I think those things play a big role or even people who do use predominantly barbell stuff like Steffi Cohen, she talks about going to failure. She deadlifts uh, twice a month. Right. Like most people yeah. are deadlifting every week that want strength. So that's something to consider as well. And and I don't know, I would like to see that because I think that a lot of if we just look at the across the board of practitioners who promote staying a little bit away from failure, they're using more of a power building approach if they're looking for hypertrophy. And it's a lot more barbell work. And the people who are promoting going to failure in the bodybuilding space aren't using as much of that. And I feel like that's gotta play a role.
1: Yeah. And it and it kind of relate this to the literature a little bit. Uh, you know strength and conditioning research was originally for sports right mm-hmm. like I mean there were bo- they're always bodybuilders you know that goes back a long way um, but they are very different in their goals and how they trained uh, so I'm pretty sure you would see a difference if you did machines versus barbells especially you'd probably even see a difference if you did barbells versus dumbbells um, so uh, again when you use some accessory well I guess they're not accessories. When you use machines, um, you can usually do more reps and you can hit that kind of metabolic threshold. And we don't actually know what that is. I just made that up. um, That needed to really grow when we're going to failure. failure,
0: Yeah, yeah, I think... I think that's, that's, I've actually never even thought about like splitting it up like that, but I think that might be a helpful way for people to even program themselves, you know, looking at their program going, okay, what can I take to failure here? You know, and then, and then doing so. Um, I mean, even yesterday I went to failure on, uh, it was like chest and back and uh, I was doing stretchers. Have you ever done those? Like a lat pull down machine. Yep. Like I, I was done with my compounds for the day. It was like a couple burnout sets like, and it was fun, you know, but I wasn't like, I'm not crushed today. I'm not hurting today. If I wouldn't have gone to failure and that's actually a good point too. If I wouldn't have gone to failure, I might not have gotten everything out of that because today I'm not even sore at all. Right. So doing a little bit is okay. And, and also splitting it up. Like I had, um, I hurt my back not long ago. So I changed my training up a little bit and I was going chest and back, shoulders and arms, legs, then chest and back, shoulders and arms, a little bit more bodybuilding, body part focused, with a higher frequency. And then just one leg day, that was the big thing. It's like, I'm going to stop loading my legs so much just to give my back a break. Um, and somebody was asking like, "Oh, my shoulders kill me when I have a shoulders day after chest day. And I was like, yeah, but my first chest and back day, I do heavy bench. My first shoulders day that comes after that, I don't even touch a barbell. Like it's all barbelling. And then the second chest day, I don't touch a barbell. And the, the second shoulder day I do an overhead press. And I, and that's like little things like that can help you just save your joints. Like and and say things like that too. One day I do go to failure. One day I don't, you know. And you just wave that intensity.
1: Yeah, and I think from a, a coaching standpoint, right? You you know your athletes best, or you maybe know yourself best if you're a program for yourself. Um, so you have to really toy with different things and try different machines, maybe that you don't love sometimes, but then you learn to love because it's like, oh, I can I can train a little harder and, mm-hmm. and it feels better. But it took me a while to adapt to that machine. Um, so I think. You know, it's, we look at these meta-analyses and then you look at the the studies within them and you're like, "Eh, they're not really the same. They're not really what we would do. They're the best we can do right now. And it encourages further research to do things like what we're talking about. Um, And scientists have the same ideas, right? You could use, you could probably spend two or three careers just figuring out this failure versus non-failure thing. I mean, Zordos is RPE with RIR scale. Like there's no studies using that and its meta analysis either one of them that mm-hmm. was recently published and you're like okay well that's a whole like thing yeah how do we, we not count that so you can see it's it's meta analysis lag behind and then studies obviously lag behind a little bit too so it's just kind of how you interpret it
0: yeah yeah absolutely i think uh it, it's like you 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 made a good point of like it's always been strength and conditioning in athletes and stuff so it's like bodybuilding research is still relatively in its infancy, you know, we're still not me. Literally, you guys are still like pushing it along slowly. So even, even at the beginning of my career, there was barely any, you know, and I even, I was talking to Brian on our team about this yesterday on our call. <laughs> like, so, uh, so I get comments on old YouTube videos and people asking questions. And sometimes my comment back is like, don't even listen to this. Go watch a new video from me. Cause like, I should probably just delete this. Like, it's not that I'm completely wrong, but there wasn't enough research on certain things. Like I have videos going back years of like training specific to muscle fiber types. There's a whole new pool of research from Andy Galpin on that, that I would change my opinion on. Um, I have videos on diet breaks. I would, which we're going to get into in a sec. I would completely change my entire opinion on, you know, all these different things, reverse dieting, um, all the things that we care about in the bodybuilding world, um, in the body composition, aesthetic world that are just different because research is finally coming out, you know? Um, so, uh, concluding this one, what are your overall thoughts on on training to failure?
1: Um, so, it, it, this is pretty much the same as what I said last blog slash podcast. Uh, pick your spots when you train to failure. Um, you need to push yourself when you're trained, and you can get away with probably not going to failure when you're when you're on the newer end of of um, you know training your training age, like you said. Um, I think it's probably not required to go to failure, but if you want to maximize your gains, you're probably going to need to use it at least. So that would be my kind of like, take home.
0: I love it. Yeah. I think my take home is pretty similar. I think for coaches listening, um, programming based on your client's experience and knowledge of their own personal intensity is like a big thing to consider. You know, like if you go into the tailored trainer and you go to like a, beginner to intermediate program, there's a lot of like RPE 10s and 9s and RIR 0s and 1s. And it's because I know that that's probably ending up being like an RIR 2 or an RPE 8 for that person because they don't know what true failure is. And if you go to the advanced one, it's like RPE and RIR is like 7 and 3, you know, and people are like, wait, you want me to go three reps shy and then two reps, like very rarely a 9 or a 0 or a 9 or 10 or 1 or 0. And the reason is because, yeah, because if you're doing this program, I know that you've been training probably for about five years or so, and you have more comfort and and knowledge about going to true failure. You don't need to go to failure that often. Um, And then the other thing is, like you said, like just picking and choosing what exercises you go to failure i i truly believe if i don't take lateral raises to failure i just won't get the most out of them because i can only if i the lateral raise 25s like i end up swinging by 10 reps you know if i want to control it like i'm using 15s and they're light so i have to go slow and i have to go to complete failure you know um and the last little bro thing i'll throw in is sometimes just fun so do it yesterday i did bent rows supersetted with ch- uh, band assisted chin ups and i didn't take the rows to failure near i definitely took the chin-ups to failure was there benefit maybe I, I probably could have separated those exercises and got more out of it <laughs> but i had a blast it's fun getting a pump and going to failure sometimes so be safe with it and, and have fun
1: yeah i mean ultimately we want you to exercise so if you don't like maximize every little drop of it it's it's probably okay sometimes
0: yeah yeah exactly all right so next study yeah. Yep.
1: yep All right, so this is um, the most recent diet break study. Uh, So it's the ICE CAP trial uh, where they compared continuous dieting to intermittent dieting. So intermittent dieting has breaks in it, which we call diet breaks. And they had two groups where the first four weeks of the study, they just were at maintenance. They had to figure out how much calories they needed, right? It takes a while. It takes a long while to do right. Four weeks, you're just in this study. You're not really doing anything um, in terms of getting your diet manipulated. Then you get randomized to one of two groups, either the continuous diet group, 12 weeks of a deficit, or the diet break group, which was three weeks of dieting, a one-week diet break, three weeks of dieting, one-week diet break, three weeks of dieting, one-week diet break. So ultimately, you're spending the same amount of time dieting but you just have breaks in there where are at maintenance. And they use the maintenance from the four week uh, lead in phase so that it was probably by the end of it a little bit above maintenance by the time they, they kind of got to the end. Um, and then, so the hard part about diet break studies is so to do the diet break groups were really easy. Just do the continuous diet group, like you have 12 weeks of dieting, right? But you finished before the other group because they had three weeks of diet breaks. So then you have to put that time on the end of the the study because you don't want these people to disappear, right? You need them, like you wanna do the same length and then they're at maintenance for three weeks. So I think that that right there, the way you have to design these studies is like an inherent limitation that you, Mm -hmm. as a scientist, you can't do anything about it. It's just, okay, well, that's just how we have to do things. But it does give you an opportunity to see when those people are at maintenance how are their hunger levels? How are their body composition? How does things change when you come out of a diet when you've been dieting for twelve weeks straight? Uh, now, this study was also really nice because they did um, two point three grams per kilogram protein, so about a pound a gram per pound of protein, twenty uh, percent fat from the diet, and the rest was from carbs. So, what most people would do, and especially in a physique fag world. Um, And then their training program, whatever they were doing, they just were supposed to keep doing. Um, And that's probably something else that's kind of a limitation of the study is they didn't do a lot of, they didn't publish a lot of data on the training programs that these people were doing. But they were training, and that's good. And judging from their kind of baseline levels, these were fairly strong, like -er lean-er-ish people. Um, So basically they went through the study, they did their diet breaks, they are continuous, they looked at weight loss. Uh, there were no differences between groups. They both lost about 10 pounds, so 10 pounds of so five kilos. Fat mass, there was a slight advantage, about a kilo advantage for the diet break group, uh, although that was not significant. So statistically, they're the same. And then fat free mass, they were super duper similar. There was like no differences in fat free mass changes. So that would tell us that maybe if you do diet breaks you lose a little bit more fat we're not even sure about that and when they look at resting metabolic rate so that's the amount of energy energy you expend if you're just like laying there forever um they didn't see any statistically significant changes there either and since resting metabolic rate is largely um, influenced by lean body mass, that makes sense too, because the groups lost the same amount of lean body mass. And so that right there tells us that, hey, we're not necessarily reversing any metabolic adaptations in a one-week diet. Um, and so dropouts and adherence, so they're they they were very, they're pretty similar between the groups. Like there wasn't like the diet break group did a 95% adherent then the continuous group did like a 75. It was like 80 to 85 or something. Um, and the biggest finding, I think of this whole study, like the biggest finding are the subjective measures and that's hunger and satiety. So they gave them questionnaires basically. And they said, zero to 100, how hungry are you? you know, zero is not hungry at all. And 100 is like, I'm gonna raid a grocery store right now. I, know, I had, I had there was some kind of off. <laughs> And so the continuous diet group had this increase in hunger over time. And when you diet, you get hungry. That's normal. But the diet break group kind of didn't increase. They did definitely didn't increase as much. And there was a significant significant difference. But they really didn't change a whole lot in general. Uh, so that tells us that, okay, well, to sum up the study, study results, there's no changes in metabolic rate. There's no changes in... Fat-free mass or lean body mass or really fat mass or body weight. But there was a change in how these people felt about diet. So that's kind of the summary. There have been, so Jackson's a, a really good researcher and he actually has a really, really good um, kind of main professor. So um, Amanda Sainsbury, I think she's like the main researcher in diet break, mm-hmm. the world of diet breaks. So she's done like three or four different studies. Um, And so what they've kind of done since this study has been published is they've gone back and analyzed different parts of it uh, to get more information out of it. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of chime in, because I know you've probably listened to a little bit more of the interpretation from people than I have. Um, So I try to like blind myself when I'm analyzing these studies. I don't want anybody else's opinion.
0: Yeah, I've, uh, it's actually been really cool being able to listen to, um, to to have private and public conversations with you about it, to listen to Eric Trexler, Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, obviously Jackson, who is somewhat biased because it's his study. Um, But I also appreciate the fact that he came into it thinking that there was going to be significant physiological changes because I'll be the first to admit when he first came out with this and it was like, oh, it's mainly just psychological and might help hunger and adherence. I was kind of pissed, and I was like, no, there's no way, you know, um, and after I read through his review, and the study, and then I listened to him talk, and then I interviewed him on the podcast, and then I listened to other people, review, I was like, yeah, there's, the, I mean, it's factual, you know, and then hearing people's uh, personal experiences, because, you know, when the Matador study came out, that was the first one, I think, that really, like, broke ground, and people really got in, interested in, and it kind of, I think... There was a lot of pros with it. But then when people started analyzing it deeper and deeper, you realized that like, hey, it was somewhat uncontrolled in certain settings. So maybe it was just an adherence thing, you know, that that causes because we don't know if the people on the straight diet were actually adhering long term. Um, but I think, you know, I have I have some questions about what they're breaking down into the further parts for future analysis of which by the time this airs, I think will be safe to say most of it, especially because he's already coming out and talking about a lot of it. Um, but obviously keep to yourself whatever you need to. But I think that the big thing to remember is that it's mainly like what I would say the only physiological perspective that I can see being present and probably there, which I don't know if was researched or studied at all, is, um, I mean, obviously muscle maintenance from a perspective of being able to train harder, would be one. I guess that's physiological. But I think if you don't control the training program to maybe increase volumes during diet break weeks, I don't even know if you can really justify that. You know, and I don't think they've done that in any of these. But the only other one I would say is like potentially stress management on a on a physiological level. Because I know for me, I've had people who, um and I don't think anybody in the studies have ever been in this situation, but I've had people who. I either suspect have like really wonky cortisol levels or I have people who have literally got blood work done and a medical professional has said you have dysfunctional cortisol levels or chronically elevated cortisol. In um, timing carbs and using diet breaks and, and even like intra-workout carbs and stuff like that has actually helped these people lose more weight and get better physiques and improve strength simply because we're managing stress, you know. But that's a select population. So I don't know if they looked at cortisol levels and stress management at all in these or... If they have anybody that's going to study that even needs to worry about that, you know, because that's obviously a very small population.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think they did. They did. So there's a bunch of measures I left out. I kind of just covered the main ones. Um, so they did a uh, performance. I think it was like a, a high, higher rep performance test at the beginning and end to see if like if you could influence performance. Um, and so they didn't find any differences. But remember, like. Um, the diet break group w- was longer than the dieting group who had that three weeks of maintenance so if you if you compare it at the end point like beginning and end of the basically 15 weeks or whatever it was um there's going to be a difference or, like because the one group's been in maintenance for three weeks right mm-hmm. so i think that explains why they didn't find any performance differences now i caught a glimpse of like you mentioned jackson putting up um i think a Infographic on Instagram that showed that when they looked at some section of the diet breaks, it actually improved performance to have a diet break, which totally makes sense. Like I now have all of these calories. I went from, you know, eating and, and in the blog, you can see the graphs, but eating like 2,500 calories at the start, the dieting, and then my maintenance calories. Come back up to like twenty three hundred, and my diet calories are like two thousand or less. Um, so just that's per day. Too. So over time, that's a big difference in training. And I, I I haven't seen those specifically, but from my kind of quick glance, um, there does seem to be a benefit uh, for performance within the whole study. You look specifically for things.
0: Yeah, I think that was one thing that it it definitely changed my thought process on timing these because I think that if you have somebody going through a twelve all the way up to a twenty week prep or fat loss phase or whatever. I mean, I think the diet break group on the matador was like 32 weeks. Like it was just really long, which is a huge downside we have to remember. Like somebody signing up and it's like, hey, we can do a 16 week or a 32 week diet. Same result. What do you want to do? <laughs> They're probably going to be like uh fucking 16. Um and if it's just psychological and adherence then maybe we go 20 weeks and it's two-day refeeds because we're still going to get some of that psychological uh, relax, You know what I mean? And I think that now that we know you don't, seven days probably still isn't enough to see these hormonal or metabolic changes. That would probably be my go-to is like going, okay, how long is long enough for this person to lose weight and to the point where adherence is is staying strong. And then right before they get to that point where we start seeing stress go higher, sleep go down or cravings go up or anything like that, we throw in a two to three day refeed and we jump back into the diet. You know, I think that would probably be the most productive way to do it. But the performance thing really caught my eye because I think that if you time these properly, it, I think it would influence the ability to maintain muscle in a long-term diet. You know, I think that if you're, Timing these on, even if you do it, like, let's say every fourth week, you have a a full diet break week. Three weeks is long enough to see fat loss for sure. You know, you're in a deficit for three weeks and then you can have like a a peaking week. So three weeks of like a a moderate accumulation, nothing crazy. And then during that diet break, you increase carbs significantly, increase volume. I mean, you have the fuel to do it. Let's get more volume in. Let's get harder training in. You'll recover just fine from it. That's going to produce a muscular stimulus that's going to help maintain more muscle, if not maybe recomp a little bit during that week, which is just enough to offset losing any muscle by the end of the diet. Um, Whereas before I wasn't against taking a deload and a diet break together to double down on recovery. Now I'm kind of like, well, it actually might be the opposite that we want to do, you know, like deloads. Let's, let's just deload and keep calories low and just take it easier on training and then ramp calories up for diet break and ramp intensity up every three to four weeks Um, to me, that would make a lot of sense. And that was something that like, after hearing him speak on the, the, I I believe what he said on the podcast I listened to recently on Steve Hall's podcast was, uh, they saw an increase in muscular endurance, but not strength. So, which would make sense. You have more glycogen, probably crank out some more reps, but again, do some more volume on those weeks. It might help you maintain more muscle.
1: Yeah. And I think if we look at the, the literature on kind of detraining or maintaining your muscle strength and, and size um to do that it even in a decent deficit it doesn't take a whole lot so to especially at the beginning of your of your diet right if you're going 12 weeks which i mean if you're a physique athlete you're going a lot longer than that if you're a Gen pop you're you know 12 weeks is is good amount of time frame you could probably lose 10 to 12 pounds um but maybe at the beginning, you know you even go harder into it, and you're like, "Hey, you're not even diet fatigued in this first diet break, so we're going to um, go hard on our de our, our diet breaks and training, and then kind of back off later down the road in the diet so that we can recover better. Um, and maybe you know you adhere a little better because you're, you're not going to Yeah,
0: 100 percent. and I think I think ultimately that's the, with the adherence thing it's it's in my experience, there's two types of people. There's the person who mentally, uh, needs the diet break because they're a very social person. Right. And they don't do well with rigid rigidity, which is somewhat a requirement for serious fat loss. Like you have to get somewhat rigid and, and structured. And I think people take flexible dieting and think that that means you don't have to <laughs> like follow a pretty set routine, but usually people do better when they have a set routine. But I think that, um, I know in my experience, there's people that I talk to that they're like, Oh, I need this diet break. And it has nothing to do with cravings. It's like, I want to go have a glass of wine with my husband or I want to, you know, like, man, I've been dying to get some sushi that like my boys, like whatever it is. And it's like, perfect. Let's go do that for a few days. And then there's other people who are like, nope, I just want to get to the goal as fast as I can. But I notice there, and this is why we track craving as a biofeedback. I notice their hunger and cravings like slowly go up week after week. And I'm like, all right, we're going to take a diet break. And I'm like, no, like I can get it. And I'm like, no, there's like a binge right around the corner. And I know it and it's okay because you know I get cravings too. Yeah. we're human, so I think looking for those signs and knowing what kind of person they are, and then that can kind of give you the gauge of when to place them in but and I also think too, like there's people who I had a question on my instagram q and a yesterday, and there was like, uh I'm at a plateau where I'm not losing fast enough. should I add more diet breaks as if that's gonna speed it up and I was like, no, actually, you should probably stop taking them i mean if you're if you're sticking to it, like yeah. stay in the deficit, like get after it if you want fast results." But I think this is a good sign because a lot of people thought almost like you had to recharge the metabolism in a way, and and I think this is this research is showing us like no, you don't need to do that, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll put my super scientist hat on here for a second. Um, so the Matador study, like you said, sixteen weeks of dieting versus thirty weeks of two weeks of dieting, two weeks of diet break. Right, that's not really realistic. Nobody's going to take a two week diet break every uh, two weeks. What um, they did show, you know, quite impressive results when it comes to the metabolic adaptation effect and if you look at their their kind of study design and you look at what it was based on you can see that it kind of matches the literature where two weeks seems to be the low point of metabolic adaptation when you're dieting like that's like you hit your max adaptive point and so over time if you come out of it your metabolism will increase but it takes a little time so the differences between these two, stu- two studies besides the protein and the, the training and a lot of things, too, um, <laughs> yeah. is the amount of diet break. So now we have to ask the question, okay, so if one week doesn't matter and two weeks does, at least, you know, according to the literature a little bit, is there a 10-day diet break that's like the sweet spot mm. where you can, you know, do a, do a diet break, get your metabolism to bounce back a little bit? and use that as an effect? No. I don't know. I don't I not, Yeah, I'm not even sure if you could see that. And to design that study you would essentially have to repeat this one, right? And then do 10-day diet break instead of a 7-day diet break. And you're like, "Come on. That's that's ridiculous." Yeah. Right? But that's the next step in the scientific kind of realm.
0: Yeah. And I think that's why as these re- these studies come out, more and more people like us ask questions and say, what ifs? And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well now we have the design for the next study. And as long as they can get funding for it, more and more research is going to come out. Um, but I think, uh, how long did you say before the metabolic adaptation is really like significant?
1: About two, two to three weeks. Um, okay. when you look at the literature where they like cut their food by like 50 or about 50% and then track their metabolism over the three weeks, cause you're not going to lose like, I think, of muscle in three weeks. Yeah. As an example, like you're going to lose glycogen, but three weeks of a 50% deficit, it sucks, but yeah. it's not like the end of the world. So that, that's that kind of the model of okay, we're going to put you in a surplus for three weeks. We're going to see what happens to your metabolism. Okay, it increases 50 calories a day, 75 calories a day. Well, I'm not going to eat 3,000 calories if my baseline is 2,000. So that's ridiculous. And then the opposite end is also kind of ridiculous, but they show like proof of concept of like, this is what the metabolism kind of kind of do. Yeah. Um, so from there we design these longer studies.
0: Do you, do you know if there's any, I mean, you can't do research on diet fatigue because diet fatigue is like an umbrella of psychological, physiological, you know, physical, like all these different things. Like you're just running down from the diet, but do you know, like what would your, this is purely like from you looking at all the research, having a lot of experience, is there a point where you feel like this is kind of where people peak at the diet fatigue area? Like for me, I would say it's usually about 12 weeks that I see with people after about 12 weeks of dieting. That's when they're like kind of tired of the diet, you know? And that's where like, I think diet breaks can help you push past that 12 week point. Or you can, the reason I'm asking this is because like listening to you talk on this, um, listening to him talk about it, post about it. It kind of makes me feel like I did this last phase like literally perfectly by accident because I bulked for a year with Trexler. And then we dove into, actually it was like 10 months. And then we dove into a diet. Um, So it was at maintenance two months, a surplus for 10 months straight. Then we did a deficit for three months. And then at the third month, life stressors, I was moving, business was crazy. I was like, Hey, I'm going to, I got to, I can't push through this. I'm going to take a break. So I just brought up to like a lower maintenance that I thought was right. And I stayed there for probably two months, almost three now. And, uh, and now I'm like feeling really good and life's calmed down. And now I was like, all right, let me jump back into it. Funny enough, I'm, I'm bringing Jackson on to take me through it. But it was like, all right, now I'm ready to cut again. So I'll spend another like three or four months cutting. Cause I didn't gain a bunch of weight during my maintenance phase. But now that I look at it, I'm like, that's actually probably perfect. You know, like three or four months of dieting and then taking a two to three month break which probably is significant enough to see some physiological changes with my metabolism and then jumping back into a cut. That'll be probably another three to four months leading me perfectly into summer, of course, and hopefully I'll be shredded. Like, does that make sense? I feel like from a diet fatigue perspective and trying to manage all these things, it's almost like worked out perfectly.
1: Yeah. I mean, so this is what you described is where the kind of, really good natural physique athletes and, and some non-natural are going where like there's a pre diet to the competition diet mm-hmm. so you diet for like three or four months and then you take a diet break and you just sit at the maintenance for a couple months and then you go back into your competition prep diet and and you go all the way to your competition so i mean i've totally seen other people do this and i think my my problem so i've my last diet was about three months, and then I did uh, a diet break that just turned into maintenance forever. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you know it kind of depends where you're at in life and how lean you want to be. Um, but yeah, I think I think you did. It sounds like you set it up perfectly for what you what you want to do. Yeah,
0: you're like, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go on a diet break. Oh, how long's it last? Nah, a couple of years. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, and, and honestly, like again, this is purely like periodizing off life. I don't. I'm not doing a competition. I've seen. Competitive bodybuilders talk about this, but it's hard to convince a normal person to do that you know that's what three three to four plus two to three you're already six or seven months in you know five to seven months yeah. at least and then the diet diet hasn't even started yet so but if somebody comes to you like you know if somebody came to us and they're like, hey, I've been at maintenance or above for a while like I've built a lot of muscle, I'm ready to really do this commit to a year and and you could create probably your best physique and maybe maintain a leaner physique than normal because of it, depending on how far you want to take, how lean you get, obviously. Um, And I think that's, I mean, that's really just like lifestyle periodization. Like I'm glad it worked out that way, but it wasn't on purpose, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's going to be perfect now. So that's, uh, no, it's interesting. I think overall the, the, why is it called ice cap? I'm like staring at the title and I'm trying to put the letters Uh, together.
1: Intermittent versus continuous. Uh, so it's I don't know. It, every really good trial, like trial like this, has a acronym, and I was impressed that they got ice cap.
0: Yeah, this so. is a good one. It is. Yeah, but like, I'm like Ma-
1: like Matador is also like minimizing adaptive thermogenesis and something else. Whatever. Yeah. Um, it's it's a skill. Like, yeah. The name of study is a skill.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, but no, I think overall, I think it's a great study. I think, um, in my opinion, I think this one. I mean, it sounds pretty ridiculous to the average person for me to say it's revolutionary but I think in the diet break world it kind of is because it definitely kind of turned things on its head matador was too but then this kind of corrected some of the faults or the things that we missed with that and I think it definitely gives us a lot of information on what they're actually useful for and how we can program them and I know in our coaching now a lot of what we do is less structured whereas when matador came out and it first came out it was kind of like all right we have these structured periodization plans of like the Bill Campbell style, five days on, two days off. And we had the one week on, one week off, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, one week off. And it was kind of like, which one of these options is going to be best for them? And now that we get further into it, people are like, oh, how long before a diet break? Well, I don't know. And they're like, well, how how do you determine? It's like, well, by coaching. You know, every experience and every individual, it could be every 10 days. It could be every 14 days. It could be every every 21 days. We could not, with Eric Treachern, when I did my first three months, I didn't take a single diet break, right? Because we just mm-hmm. – we went slow. And for me, it was like, I'm just going to gradually lose weight. And you know, there was a couple of days I slipped up a little bit, but I recovered the next day with some flexible dieting day to day. And it is what it is. You know, I think so. I didn't lose any muscle. At least I don't think I did. But, um, I think that's the big key is like, you don't need them. It's, it's more so psychological person to person. And, uh, I think the, the hunger and adherence improvement that they saw is a big one for people to pay attention to and then the muscular endurance is a big one to pay attention to for like serious physique athletes. Cause you can use that to your advantage to maintain muscle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good, good recap and good practical application. I think they also lost weight at a reasonable weight. So it's like 0.7% per week, which is what like we kind of want to aim for. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, like take your time, do your diet, like eat a lot of protein, be patient, keep training. Right.
0: Yeah um said really well and simply from a scientist who who looks into all the nitty-gritty details and that just goes to show like you don't need to overcomplicate this
1: yeah it's it's fun to do and talk science but like me talking to like a you know 40 year old mom who's got like kids and and a job and and trying to do all this stuff like i I don't need to explain all that
0: yeah and and you know to that point is the last thing i'll say and then we can kind of wrap it up but to that point, if we look at the psychological benefits, especially from if we're applying it to a gen pop, a free meal might be the way to go. You know, it might be just one of those things where it's like, hey, we don't need a full week. I need you to go have like a girls night or I need, hey, I need you to go out with your boys and play poker and not track today. Like, you know, something simple. It's like, like I've done those two where it's like intuitively make sure you don't eat over a thousand calories at your free meal. It's like, okay. Because if, yeah. if I know the person knows what that is, like I can go to sushi and I can know, you know, what is a thousand calories or like for me, it's usually like wine with Shannon and it's like, okay, how many glasses of wine equals a thousand calories, <laughs> two bottles. That's my limit. No, I'm just playing. Um, but like really like, okay, like let me look at this plate, you know, and, and that's your free meal Cause if it's a psychological thing, you get it right there. You know, that's it. Yeah. for
1: sure.
0: So, um, do you have anything you want to throw out before we close out? Uh,
1: no, I think we covered it pretty well. Um, I did cover like, diet breaks on my instagram if anybody wants to get into the specific studies like of like the history of diet breaks um so check that out if you want to
0: cool i'll link that in the show notes i will also link the blog in the show notes we are splitting this one up into two so um there's gonna be two separate blogs one for the diet break research one for the failure research and i'll also put some of the infographics that uh brandon put together in those blogs so you can see them there as well but all those will be in the show notes and uh we'll catch you on the next research review